Thank you, choir and Kayleen. It's good to see you today. We're glad that you are here. If you're visiting with us, we are really thankful the Lord has led you our way. And uh, you have come in the midst of a long series. I'm kind of losing count of the number of messages. I think we're up close to 20. Uh, We'll uh, go back soon, I think, and um, catalog a list of all of the sermon titles and the text. Those are available, obviously, online. And when we're done, uh, hopefully sometime down the road, uh, those will be available to you to go back and, um, and work through. So what we're trying to do in this series is entitled True Lines as we're trying to learn about our faith from the ground up. Started a long time ago in the book of Jude, talking about the faith once delivered to the saints. And so we have talked about um, the scriptures, about creation, about angels, about the uh, origin of evil. Uh, we've talked about the fall of mankind and how that's affected everything. Then we started talking about grace, and we're still kind of in grace and what flows out of it. And now we're beginning, um, have been the past few weeks, talking about change, uh, sanctification, and how the Lord is changing us to be like himself. And so today we're going to continue talking about what we started last week in a message entitled Sabbath Law and Grace, and this will be Sabbath Law and Grace number two. I will tell you that I won't finish today. So next week, there will be Sabbath Law and Grace three. And then we will kind of uh, take a little hiatus in uh, December uh, as we focus upon uh, Christmas and the theme of light. And then we'll pick back up in January and keep going. And if you'd like to read along, I'm not going through this sequentially, but sort of the background for what we're talking about is our statement of faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. You can pick up these little pamphlets around the campus. And um, I'm being very transparent as I go through this with you as well about um, my own uh, life, my own faith, how I process things, how I think through things um, as I look back over my life and try to think about my life, uh, where it may go if God gives me length of years. And so, Father, we pray now that you would guide us as we um, continue this, Lord, uh, looking into your word. And we thank you for the change that you have brought in your son when you saved us, Lord, and the change that continues as we grow up in him. And, Lord, we just pray that you would give us a heart to pursue you with everything within us. Uh, Lord, to become like you, as Paul said, he wanted to know Christ and the power of of his resurrection. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us that type of desire. We commit now this uh, time of proclamation study into your hands. Thank you for what we've already experienced in worship through song and the other things that we've already done today. And we just, Lord, uh, pray that you would shepherd us through uh, for your glory now as we come before you, Lord, to, uh, to worship you and to serve you and offer ourselves, Lord, uh, in thanksgiving to you as your people, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, in most family picture albums in the South, you'll find pictures like these in uh, plastic sleeves, or if not there, you will find them in old shoe boxes uh, tucked away in a closet or someplace for safekeeping. I pulled down my family's old shoe box the other day, and was looking back, and most of my shoebox pictures are my great, my grandparents and great-grandparents, and a lot of people in there I don't know. But I got their pictures anyway. 
But, you know, you, you find these scrolls of families dressed up uh, to go to church. You could put an inscription below these pictures, uh, like the Geico commercials, church is what you do. Because it was what many people did, including myself, pretty much all day in the South in that generation. Well, as we began talking about this last week, we noted that in the Deep South, even in Baptist churches, we were in many ways Sabbatarians. And we acted in some ways like the Jews about the Sabbath. Today, as we continue advancing in our series, True Lines, seeking to look at our faith from the ground up, we're going to look at this particular statement of our faith called the Lord's Day and see how it is to apply to life how we should perhaps think through what we say we believe that is distinctive from a Sabbatarian view and how that is to influence how you and I are to live. And so if you have your Bibles, let's open them again to three places that we read last week. But if you were not here, this helps you catch up a little bit. Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments in verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It was also the day of Jewish worship, obviously, uh, in the ancient world. And then Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, just a couple of verses from the New Testament. Romans 10 and verse 4, Paul says, Christ is the culmination or the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. And then on over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Verses 16 and 17, Paul writes and says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. I'll wait on you. I hear your pages turning. Colossians 2, 16. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Well, last week, as we continue to learn about sanctification, change, and how we're to grow in Christ, we took some time to talk about what role does the Old Testament law now play in a Christian's life. And this is as good a place as any in our series to talk about that matter and how to handle our Bibles and understand how we handle our Bibles. We do know that when we became Christians, if you have become a Christian, that you've experienced new birth, right? You must be born again. The law or the commands of God are somehow then written on our hearts, the Bible says. We get a new inner spiritual strength, a new heart. We receive a renewed mind and a liberated will. We've talked about those things over several weeks. And from that foundation, we're to build our lives, right? We're to build our lives toward being like Christ, becoming like Jesus, following after Jesus. We're to grow up in Him, as the Bible says. 
And so by God's power, over time, we are to become increasingly Christ-like in our characters. That work of maturing will someday be complete when we go to heaven. But that work is to start and to progress here as long as we have life and breath. The question for the moment that we're dealing dealing with right now, though, is what role does the law of God in the Old Testament have in that process? And so again, the title of this message is Sabbath Law and Grace Number two, so let me just kind of recap for a few moments with you, if you don't mind, what we talked about last week. Because for some of you, this was new. Some of you have told me, I've never heard this before. Some of you have told me, I don't say what you told me, but some of you told me, <laughs> I'm joking, no bad emails this week. I was thankful for that. So, what do we learn so far? Well, we learned last week, sort of recapping, that we are not under or bound by the Old Testament Mosaic Law. The Jews lived under that law, which began in the book of Exodus, around chapter 20, when God gave them the Ten Commandments, and it was stated for them chiefly in the books, the books of the law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what does Deuteronomy mean? It means second law, right? It's a restatement of the law for the Israelites before they went into the promised land. And that whole thing is known as the Old Covenant. Those 39 books of our Bible are known as the Old Testament. But that law that they lived under was fulfilled in Christ, and we are not bound by it, nor are we bound to it in the sense of living under it as a Jew lived under it. And Paul spends a lot of time talking about that in different letters, but in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, he put it this way. He says, before the coming of this faith, that is, our faith in Christ. We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Well, that sentence tells you, doesn't it? That the faith has come, we're not locked up under it anymore. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. It was like our tutor to lead us to Christ, to get us to Christ, because the law shows you you're a sinner. It was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. And so we're not now living by or under the law. We're living by and in the new covenant of grace, which we will come back to in a moment. That's the first part of our recap. Secondly, as we recap this, We are not then, for instance, because this is what we're focusing on right now, called to observe the quote-unquote Sabbath rules that were enforced during the Old Testament. Now again, many believers like myself were raised in a framework of still being under certain Sabbath regulations. So again, in my case, we did nothing like yard work on Sunday afternoons. We didn't fish. We didn't uh, play any organized sports like golf or anything else. We didn't play pickup football. Even though, as I said last week, as time went on, we watched a lot of sports on television, such as golf, football, NASCAR, and at Paul Paul Turner's house, wrestling. And we did this at his house uh, because we didn't have a television in my house for for a number of years. It kind of went out, kaput, they didn't buy one. So that's where I saw television. Sunday then was about church. It was about family in a context where most all of the businesses shut down and Life slowed down, and we had these things called blue laws that kept businesses from opening. They were penalized if they did so. But if we're saying now that we're not bound by Sabbath rules, 
We're saying that this was not really biblical. That all of the restrictions we observed, while they might have been good, and I'm not trying to castigate any aspersions on that generation, I'm thankful for how I was raised. But as we talk about what the Bible teaches, we've observed then that we're not commanded to live in that way. We were, these were not true lines, if you would, that I have to live under all these restrictions. Now, not all believers still see it this way, and some still believe we're directed by some of the Old Testament law, including Sabbath rules. And so I quoted for you last week, and go back and find it, that the Presbyterians, for instance, in, the, uh, in their statement of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, they use the word Sabbath to say that Sunday has become the Christian Sabbath. It is to be a day of rest and given to religious exercises. It is not to be given to uh, leisure or sports. It doesn't use the word sports, but those kinds of things. It's to be a day of rest and focused upon the worship of God. And a lot of your Presbyterian friends and Episcopalian friends, they don't know that themselves, but that's what their documents teach. And they even use the word Sabbath in their statements of faith. But again, moving forward in this recap, in the New Testament era in which we now live, We're not bound by the Old Testament law, but we are to live by and follow what is called the law of what? Christ. The law of Christ. And so again, I'm just trying to catch you up to make sure everybody's on the same page before I go forward today. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 21, where Paul's talking about his missionary work, he says in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9, though I am free, And what is he saying he's free from? He's free from the law and belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, Paul's saying there are people that are living under the law. I'm not one of them. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. I'm not under the Old Testament law. This is a Jew who's become a Christian. So as he says, to win those under the law. To those not having the law, that's Gentiles, I became like one not having the law. And listen listen to this very important phrase right here, very important point in your Bible. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. Where's God's law stated now for a Christian? He says it's in Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. So he talks here about the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ would be the things taught by Jesus and the apostles. We read some scriptures last week where the apostles spoke and said, this is God's command to you. And it would be the example of Jesus while he was here. And so those commandments are found in the New Testament. It is new because the old is no longer in force. And nine even of the Ten Commandments, nine of them, the only one that's not repeated in the New Testament is the Sabbath. But nine of those Ten Commandments and others are repeated. Not in a list like the Old Testament, but but they are there. And so these things are commands that we are to follow. I'm still not to bow down to idols, right? I'm still not to take the name of the Lord in vain. I'm still not to do certain things that the Old Testament tells us we're not to do because it's restated there in the New Testament. And we draw upon this law of Christ then to grow as we walk in obedience and faith. 
Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. First John, those who say they're followers of Jesus must live as Jesus lived. And so we follow him in those commands and principles of the New Testament so we can grow, so we can mature. And because we love Jesus and we desire to please him. We're to obey from the heart because the law has been written on our heart first and foremost, and that leads us to right actions. And so you and I have an internal power now to obey God in a way that the Old Testament saints did not. You have a power within you that Abraham did not have. You have a power within you that David did not fully have because the Spirit lives in us and the law of God has been written upon our hearts. And so that pulls us to want to follow the law of Christ. So then, as we recap quickly, although I had many as quick as I wanted to be, how do we think then about the Old Testament? Well, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament now becomes a source of wisdom for us. It is God's Word, these first 39 books of the Bible, and I can use that part of the Word of God to make wise decisions. We can find comfort through it. We can find warning for disobedience. We find great examples of obedience that please God. We learn the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. We can experience God as we read it, speaking to our hearts through that word. But we're not under the law as Jews in the Old Testament era were. And we looked at one example last week, and I don't have time to go back and look at it with you. Didn't plan to, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 14, you see a quotation of the Old Testament law and how it's reapplied by the writers in the New Testament, and it gives moral guidance. But it is not a law that we're to live under. So if we're not under the law, and thus not ruled by Sabbath rules, which is what we're really talking about, how is a Christian to live? Where are the lines? Are there lines for us to follow for this day? Is there any direction for us in these matters? Well, we believe that that there are. And we speak about those in our statement of faith under the heading, The Lord's Day. So, Article 8 of our Baptist Faith and Message, if we can bring it up here, says, The Lord's Day. And I want you to read this out loud with me. So, this is what we say now we believe. We're not under the law, but this is what we say we believe. That there are some guidelines for us. Can y'all see that? Well, I'm going to read it, and you act like you can read it, if you can. (laughs) The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates, that means recall, celebrate, shows respect for the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the word recall celebrates, that's my uh, addendum to that too. So what the word commemorates is talking about. So for us, these are the lines we're to follow. Notice it says nothing about a Sabbath. We're not Sabbatarians under Old Testament law. We are New Testament Christians following the new covenant and the law of Christ. So let's unpack this statement then about the Lord's day. What is it saying to us? So if you're taking notes, we've done recap And now we're at point one. There's only two points after this. And that's wonderful. And I can't see the clock back there, so I'll put my phone in so I can see. So first of all, as we look at 
what this means and we unpack it, let's talk about the fixed pattern. We do hear from that statement that there is a day that is established that Christians have always set aside that is to be observed in the normal pattern of our lives. And it is called in the New Testament, the Lord's Day. Now, if you don't know this, and nobody's ever taught you, that phrase itself comes right out of the Bible. And so if you go to the last book of your Bible, Revelation chapter 1, where John the Apostle is in prison on the island of Patmos, breaking rocks. Roman government sent him there. And the Lord's about to speak to him, and he's about to write the book of Revelation. He says in Revelation 1 verse 10, he says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So right here early on we see this thing called the Lord's day. Obviously before the end of the first century, because this is before the end of the first century, Christians had selected a primary day for worship, and they called it the Lord's Day. That day is Sunday. And it began, really, right after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to the disciples. Jesus first appeared to his disciples on Sunday. And we see the first examples of worship given to Jesus after his resurrection on a Sunday. And so if you go to the book of John, the gospel of John chapter 20, we see the appearances of Jesus. I want you to follow this with me so you can understand how we get to where we are. So in John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20, on the evening of that first day of the week, there's the first day of the week that becomes the Lord's day when the disciples were where? Together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So that's that first Sunday. But who wasn't there in the room? What's he called? Doubting who? Thomas. He wasn't there. So the disciples say, Thomas, Jesus is alive. He appeared to us. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe this until I see the wounds in his hands and in his side. I'm not going to believe it. So how does Jesus how does Jesus accomplish this for Thomas? Does he just appear to Thomas on the side somewhere on the side of the road? Hey, Thomas, you missed the meeting. No, he, he doesn't. If you skip on down here in the book of John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So they tell him, we've seen the Lord, not going to believe it. Verse 26, a week later. His disciples were in the house again. So here they are together again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And what is Thomas' response? It is worship. In the context of being with the disciples, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And so here early on, coming out of the resurrection, we see this worship in the life of the church when they're together. In the early days of the church, they worshiped together every day in the temple courts. But eventually it settled into this pattern that they had of gathering on that day that commemorated the resurrection of the dead, which is what our statement says, right? And so just a couple of other verses for you in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Just want you to follow along to know that uh, these are not my ideas. It's not something I am making up. 
This is how it developed. So Acts 20 verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together, right, to break bread. Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Paul is my example of great preaching. He preached till midnight. But you notice they came together to break bread. And that could be interpreted as partaking of the supper as well as eating, but also that Paul taught them the Word of God. And again, for time's sake, I'm not going to look it up, but go to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. It talks about when you come together on the first day of the week, that Lord's Day, bring something that you've set aside, an offering to help the poor Christians. And so beyond that pattern that God established, Gathering with other believers for worship, fellowship, prayer, the breaking of bread, this developed into a command. Are you and I under the command of God as a moral obligation to gather with his people? We see a pattern here, and we call it a a pattern, do we not? The Lord's Day, it's an institution we call it. But is it a command? It is. Because we say the New Testament is the law of Christ, right? And so you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, we hear that this developed into an expectation, a command. And so in Hebrews 10, 25, the writer says, verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And then verse 25, Hebrews 10, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But rather what? Encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. That is the second coming of Christ. They were called to meet together more and more. And it became a command. And thus in our statement of faith. It says that in regular observance. We're to devote this day to quote. Exercises of worship and spiritual devotion. Both public and private. That is, we're to be gathering with other believers for public worship. And it is a command upon New Testament Christians. We do that in light of the resurrection of Jesus. We are gathering for our good, for our growth. We're gathering to thank God for what he's done for us in Christ and to say to the world, That Jesus is the risen Lord and the true King of the world. That's what this is about. We're worshiping the King of the universe and His coming kingdom. We're saying we are His people that He's called out of the world and He's assembled us. That's what the word church means. And we gather in the light of the fact that He is ruling now and He will come to establish that final rule in a coming new heaven and earth where the Bible says that someday that before Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord under the glory of God the Father. And so our first thoughts, our first plans as a regular pattern of life on Sundays as a disciple of Jesus, should be where will I gather with the people of God on the Lord's day for worship? That's what ought ought to occupy my mind above all things on this day. 
Where am I going to gather to hear the Word taught? Where am I going to gather where the Word is proclaimed? Where am I going to gather and identify with the called out people of God? Where am I going to gather to say Jesus is the King of the world? And we must remember as well that God is determined, we're talking about change today, God is determined that our growth and our change is going to take place chiefly in the context of community. That's how important the church is. The relationships that we're to have. So, you know, as you think about our, our Bibles, our New Testaments, Paul wrote most of it, right? In the New Testament. And when Paul wrote the letters and he sent them, some of them were personal letters to Timothy, Titus. Most of these letters, though, he addresses them to what? Churches. And when the letters go to the churches, what does he tell them to do? In Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, I'll just read one of these, and the other is 1 Thessalonians 5, 27. You can look at that one later. But in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. That is, the Word of God was read publicly to gathered Christians. Because that was their pattern, and they gathered, and that's where you would communicate with them. The Word of God gathered. They had private devotions, but the public gathering was central. And it still is to be today. And the ancient world came to recognize that Christians gathered on Sunday to worship Christ as a God. It was their pattern. You know, in about A.D. Um, 152, about 50 years after John wrote Revelation, a man named Justin Martyr wrote these words. He says, And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. Then the president, the leader, verbally instructs and exhorts the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. Bread and wine and water are brought. Sunday is the day on which we hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God made the world and Jesus Christ, on our, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. So that is our pattern. It is an institution rooted in Scripture and we're commanded to gather as the people of God. It's not an option for me as a Christian to say, I don't really think I need to gather with the church. Then secondly, let me talk about some various applications and considerations. And it's going to get real fun next week, but um, let's kind of trudge through this, this thing here. You with me so far? Okay. Some various applications and considerations. So that's the general pattern. That's the command. The Lord's day is to be a day where worship is first consideration but our statement also says something else. It says about matters, uh, something about matters of conscience. You remember that part? So it says it is an institution where we're to have public and private worship. But the last part of it says activities on the Lord's day should be commensurate, that is, equal with, in keeping with, the Christian's conscience under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That means that I, as an individual Christian, have a conscience about these areas of the Lord's day and how I'm to live out certain things. I've got to think about this. And we're not all going to slice and dice it the same way. 
And because we're not Sabbatarians under the law, we have certain freedoms to do that. And so we're going to unpack some of that this week and next. But so let me spend the rest of our time with some applications, considerations. If I don't answer your questions or you need more help in processing some matters about this issue, just let me know. Email me. I can't cover all the scenarios from the pulpit, but hopefully what I do will help you put together your plan for Lord's Day issues. So here are several statements we need to consider. While we focus on the Lord's Day, since we're not Sabbatarians, Christians can gather on any day and at any time for worship. So we say the Lord's Day is an institution, but that doesn't exclude other days of being able to gather and worship. The early Christians gathered every day, right? And that is why some evangelical churches have times of corporate worship on Saturday evenings. Is that okay to do? Well, yes, it is. It's okay to have a worship service on a Thursday night or a Thursday morning. We have in our church times to meet on Sunday morning, Sunday evenings, two different services at Sunday night, and we have at times treated Wednesday night as another night of worship, sometimes more of a full worship on Wednesday nights. No other day is to replace the observed Lord's Day, but it doesn't restrict us only to that day. And so that helps us when we think about how do I live out my conscience in relationship to the fact that I may not be able to gather here. Second observation, consideration. This certainly tells us, though, that we should, as a pattern of life, seek to be in some corporate worship each week, if at all possible. And so the New Testament assumes that believers would gather into local congregations where they'd be deeply affiliated. They would meet with those local congregations, like Concord Baptist Church, if you're a member, regularly. And so for us, then, this means as a believer, I'm to identify and link myself to a local body of believers, place myself under the leadership of a pastor or pastors, and support and follow the regular patterns and rhythms of that church. For us, at Concord Baptist Church, the central weekly gathering for our people in corporate worship is Sunday mornings for Bible study and corporate worship. That's our central focus. And we're to be covenanted together as the body of Christ to meet together, and we should do our very best to be involved in keeping that covenant relationship with each other, primarily on Sunday mornings. But let me finish with some sidebar issues. And so, we're to gather, it's commanded, we need to plug into a local church. Doesn't preclude having other days you can gather for worship, but the Lord's Day is central. You're, the church you join, you should... Uh, you should be a part of that and support what's taking place there in its primary time of worship. But here's some sidebar issues. At some point when people who profess to be believers are meeting less and less, when the writer of Hebrews says we're to meet, what, more and more, at some point does this become sin in your life in relationship to the fact that you're not gathering. And I'm not addressing those who are physically infirmed. Some of you may be watching online or with compromised conditions who are still meeting online. I'm not speaking to those of you who may be working certain jobs that keeps you from being able to worship publicly. You may be a nurse and you work from 6 in the morning to 6 at night, 12-hour shifts. I'm not addressing you. But I am addressing the question, if we're meeting less and less in our lives, is there a point at which, when I'm commanded to do this, that it becomes sin? There's a trend, some argue, developing in the American church where people attend once a month 
And they see themselves as committed believers and committed to their church. And people are studying and tracking this. That means they go 12 times a year and they think they're deeply committed to Christ and his church. But at some point, if we are commanded to gather and I'm finding reasons to not gather, at some point it's going to have to be counted as sinful and being disobedient to Jesus. Now, we don't stone people for missing like in the Old Testament law. But I would say as a pastor of God, seeking to be faithful to the truth, because I'm going to give an account to God for this, that large quarters of the American church may be in what we used to call a backslidden condition over this matter with these trends. Churches take it or leave it for me. I read on Facebook this week, a large church in the upstate, the pastor posted this, uh, this posting. You know the church if I said it, I won't say it. It's not us, but he said this. That their church and its campuses, he says, we're now averaging around the same in worship attendance as we uh, were before COVID in December of 2019. Still, we have hundreds of new faithful people attending. So we must logically deduce that hundreds of people who once were faithful haven't come back. I continue to encourage the few who are truly isolated for health concerns, that is those who are not going to sporting events, grocery stores, restaurants, and other social events, to continue to worship online. This is completely understandable. COVID, however, has now become an excuse for many to miss church. Let's be clear. To return to normal activity in every other area of life, but to stay out of church is to become unchurched. That took some courage to write. A lot of other pastors said, like, yeah, get them. <laughs> and then he concluded by saying this, I encourage you to come home, get your family back in church, return to the community of faith you so desperately need. And if you know someone who fits this category, give them a call and invite them to worship this Sunday morning. A little more on the sidebar. If you have to miss or to be out of town, this command to gather would, I think, call us to seek to gather with other believers in churches where we happen to be. Even if I have to go on a Saturday evening, find a church meeting on Saturday night. Or trying to get back to another service at your home church. Or gathering with other believers for worship in a setting where you, you may have to be. In other words, if you're in a campground somewhere in the middle of nowhere out in Wyoming, perhaps you should see if they have some chaplain services and a, a service taking place in the campground, right? Gather with believers. Or you may be like pro or college players, have to travel for their livelihoods, but many of them plug in on the Lord's Day with chaplains who are doing services for them. The point is that if I can't be involved in my home fellowship, on the Lord's day, and I'm commanded to do this, I need to be seeking venues where I can worship. Because I'm expected by Christ to do this. And I don't always hit it 100%, but I, I try to. That if, uh, if I'm on, a, on vacation, I visit a church. I did it in Destin this summer. Or several months ago, I was gone for about a week trying to work on this series and I was uh, also trying to finish a book that I have now finished and praying that the Lord help me get it published and um, didn't have a car but I ubered about 20 miles to a church to go to a morning worship service so make it a habit 
Then as I wrap this up today, let me just begin to meddle a little bit. We must ask ourselves as parents and grandparents, what am I communicating is most important by my actions in relationship to public gatherings of worship? Do the people around me know that Jesus is Lord? Do they know that I counted an important discipline and service in my life to gather with God's people out of love for Christ and obedience to the law of Christ? Do they see that in my efforts to gather with God's people when I'm in town and when I'm out of town? Do my neighbors know that on most Sundays this person is going to be gathering with his or her spiritual family, the people of God? Jesus, the Bible says, made it his custom made it his custom to gather with people in worship. If he counted it as important, he is our model. Well, am I following his model? I always admired a man in my home church where I grew up. He owned a tire store in town. His name was uh, Herman. And he was a leader in the church. He was a deacon. He was a Sunday school teacher. And I'm not saying you have to slice and dice it the way he did. And we'll talk about this and get into the weeds on this. But I always admired this man named Herman. That no matter where he was in his big uh, camper, on, on almost every occasion, from wherever he was, he would drive back so he could be in his class on Sunday morning because he had a responsibility to teach his class. And he made it his habit to be back. I always admire that. And while we're not Sabbatarians and we may not slice and dice this all the same way, there are some lines we must consider, some questions we must ask ourselves related to our, activ our activities on the Lord's Day that would keep us from regular worship. So next week, I'm going to conclude this matter by looking at more of some of these issues. Some of these matters of conscience issues and how to balance them with the command to be in regular public worship. We're going to focus on things like, what am I to do with my leisure on Sunday? Am I required to cease from all labor on Sunday? Raking leaves, cutting grass, doing homework. Students all said, yes. <laughs> Should I care about what others think? About what I'm doing with my life on any day of the week? Elephant in the room. Pastors talk about this. Churches talk about this. How do I handle the travel everything issue? Travel baseball, travel soccer, travel basketball, travel cheer, travel gymnastics, travel interpretive dance, and on and on the list grows. How am I to handle this in my life? And how am I to work through this with my kids? What do I say to my kids about things like that? That is when different families handle this in different ways, and that happens. How do I handle my kids saying, I'm bored? in relationship to going to church attendance. This is going to be fun. And uh, what a great week to invite somebody to come with you. The pastor may get fired next Sunday. It could be fun. It could be a lot of fun. But we're going to unpack this more on the Lord's Day. And I'm going to stop there for now, okay? So we're taking away today that we're not under the law, right? But I am under the law of Christ. The pattern for Christians rooted in the New Testament is that we gather chiefly on the Lord's Day. We have public worship. We have private devotions. But I'm free in my conscience in relationship to other things in relationship to that day. How am I to live out these things in my life 
and seeking to be obedient to Jesus, seeking to be the witness Christ would have me to be, seeking to lead my family as I ought to lead it. Well, that's what we're going to plug into a little bit more next week.